Welcome, you're listening to the podcast Outlander Soul, searching for the soul of Outlander with me, Dr. Jamie Reeves. And me, Reverend Terry Menefigal. This whole podcast, we talk about the entire series of Outlander books one through eight, as well as what has happened in the TV show thus far. So there's going to be spoilers. Wow. Okay. So season three, episode one. We're back. We are back. (laughs) Y'all, we are still alive. We have been beavering away back here in the background, doing all our other things. (laughs) I think in the United States, that might mean something different. Yeah. I, I wouldn't mind doing that, but I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, beavering away here means busy. Yeah. You're, you're, mm. you're busy building houses, chopping down trees, mm-hmm. going for it. Um, yep. Yeah, yep. not so much in the States. Sorry. I kind of forget. It's been a long time <laughs> since I've been there, and I realize I've... Yeah. That's okay. That's okay. I have not been doing that, but I have been very, very busy. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. I had this conversation yesterday with someone, well, with actually a couple of friends, and I was like, you know, I don't want to be that boring person. It's like, oh, I'm so busy as some kind of, you know, like ego thing, Um, because I try really hard not to be that, because I don't think busyness is a status symbol or, you know, means by which we measure our success and our value, value, right? But damn, I've been busy. Yeah. <laughs> so, but so here's the thing. It has been a busy winter into spring. Yeah, and because we were planning on being back with the season in April. And, we were. And it's not April. It's it's <laughs> crazy. At least it's for me, and it has been extremely busy, is that I just like to do a lot of things. Me too. I like all the things that I do, and I don't want to get rid of all of me them. Too. And it's it's one of the things I've noticed about really successful, interesting, fun people Mm -hmm. is that they tend to be doing lots and lots of things all at once. And they just, they just move the things on the burners to put something on the back burner whenever the other thing heats up. And so this past winter and spring, everything heated up at once. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot going on. So we originally finished up our recording back in February of 2019 for season two two because Jamie was like getting ready for a crazy crazy March and so Jamie why don't you lead off with your crazy life oh my god (laughs) well it hasn't even stopped that's the thing from pretty much March onward I knew I was going to have kind of an intense sort of six weeks and it just really hasn't stopped but I went to the states to Texas and worked with a church and spoke at a festival yeah so I was doing kind of a little theologian in residence stint with a church in College Station uh, doing stuff around hospitality and sanctuary, which was amazing. It was such a great experience and such an amazing Aww. church. They were fantastic and kind of, yeah, it was great. And yeah, I spoke at the festival, uh, New Story Festival, which was in Austin, and that went really well. I uh, we did a session on reading fiction, a sacred text, which was really great. Folks were really interested. And yeah, and then came back and just kind of hit the ground running and have been doing lots of workshops and teaching and yeah, I, I am in a position now, and I've said this to a few people, but I'm in a position now where I need to probably start saying no to things. And yeah. and I've been operating on a default yes for about four or five years, and I'm yeah. not quite sure how to do that anymore. And I know I need to, and I know I need to set some criteria, and I know I can't do everything, and even though I am really interested in everything (laughs) and so yeah I I'm intentionally taking a holiday next week 
but things are not going to calm down for me really until kind of mid-July. And so it's been a really interesting experience and, and I love being busy and I love being a part of lots of things and irons in the fire kind of stuff, but it needs to also come to an end at some point. I, it, they need to be seasons. This has been a busy season, but it needs to, I need to take a break kind of July and August, I think. So. Well, you started a new job last year, I right? Did, you started yeah. a new job. Yeah. So I'm teaching and working at Sarum College in Salisbury. Uh, here in England, which is great. It's a perfect fit for me. I started it in December, but that has kind of contributed to lots of this busyness because now that I'm there, folks are like, oh, she must be legit. And it's like asking me to do things. (laughs) And so, yeah, there's the curse of the freelancer is, you know, once you're connected to some kind of organization and then all of a sudden, you know, you're not a scary rogue person out there anymore um, yeah suddenly other people have approved of you yeah. and now you have value right yeah. right which I is completely irritating as hell but I understand it at the same time so yeah 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 because there are a lot of people out there who aren't legit that's and true they do. and yeah. I'm working with or I'm encountering some of those folks um yeah so <laughs> that's interesting too but Terry you started a new job too so I started a new job in February yep. mid-February I am working with Community Idea Stations which is the Richmond affiliate for NPR and PBS Public Radio uh, for the win I know uh, and, and public television public and you know the idea that I get to work in a television station still has me in awe every time I show up yeah. I, I look around and I'm like I get to work here yeah. this is really the best thing yeah. ever my job is events manager mm. and so what I do is I connect all that amazing programming on television and on radio to the community at large by providing events that connects them to that so for instance there is the Downton Abbey movie is coming up mm-hmm. in September and so I'm planning an event here in Richmond for the Downton Abbey movie do you know Julian so- Fellows the guy who wrote Downton Abbey lives a about 20 miles from me well then I need to talk to him <laughs> I mean you know like he lives in Stratton I think or is it West Stratton I can't remember but yeah so it's you just need right to let here him know that your yep. your good friend Terry yeah, I know scripts. I know <laughs> so yeah it's been it's been a rather steep incline getting to know this new space mm-hmm. instead of working with just four people which is what I was working with before I'm now working with 104 people mm-hmm. and there's a lot more capacity but there's also a lot more hoops to go through and it's been a rather steep incline yeah I can imagine but it's been a good one this is a good team and they really do have your back and they take care of you and they believe in what they do yeah. that's the other thing I was just so impressed with is that when we talk about public television and public radio and that we want to bring things that educate and inspire people Mm. and entertain people as well we they really believe this and that I love that so much so I'm loving where I'm at right now and I'm loving what I'm doing other things that have been going on (laughs) in my life so my son is in college we we do want to to visit him as well so we're back and forth between savannah and richmond mm-hmm. which is about eight hours apart i won a big award for one of oh my, my screenplays tell us yes. about that just really quickly <clears throat> yeah uh, my screenplay unplugged won best tv drama pilot one hour drama pilot for the can screenwriting competition oh my gosh 
which is a pretty big deal. It is a very big deal. And I, I would be at Cannes, except that there's no presentation. There's no ceremony. Mm. There's nothing like that. Everything was just online. And so I'm going to try to work the angles to see if I can get an agent or if I can get the producer interested in it. Mm. And that's been the best advice from everybody I know in the business. Right. So it's getting some play. People are starting to look at it and read it. And I'm getting befriended by people on social media that I don't know but who are in the industry Tara, and so it's been kind of cool <laughs> I've got fans so it's it's kind of cool other things that have been going on is you know just a lot of writing mm. a lot of work here I've been getting some dings as far as acting is concerned which is unusual and weird mm. but good and just it's just been every weekend been something on yeah so Sarah I'm, I that job it's been really interesting for me as you're talking about kind of public radio and public engagement and that kind of stuff I've never really wanted to play the academic game I'm not really interested in the publisher parish sort of hamster wheel and so what I love about Sarum is that part of my job is doing the community education or the non-formal kind of adult education program that's not degree seeking and that has been such a freeing thing to be part of a community and part of a, an organization that sees that on equal par with master's and, and bachelor's level programs. That's fantastic. It's been so fantastic. So that's why I was like, it's such a it's such a great fit for me. I'm headed to Jersey, the island of Jersey, not New Jersey, for <laughs> a conference uh, that was by kind of invitation only, which... I'm a little kind of what? Yeah, I so the stuff around hospitality has been the thing that's happening in June, and then you and I are doing Wild Goose Festival again this year. We um, are, but we're doing it a little bit differently this time. Yeah, yeah. Both Jamie and I put in for teaching workshops mm-hmm. this year, mm-hmm. and both of us were accepted for workshops. I didn't do a workshop last year because I just really wanted to see what Wild Goose was about first and I didn't really have any type of content that I thought of Mm. but Jamie taught one last year it was awesome (laughs) and so we're both doing it again this year but here's the big news guys the Goose Cast which is the Wild Goose podcast Mm. has invited us to be one of the podcasters so we will be broadcasting on the podcast from the Wild Goose Festival Mm -hmm. which is really really exciting yeah which is probably still going to be kind of centered around this kind of reading fiction as a sacred text or as a spiritual practice kind of kind of thing a bit of news too so I'm working with it's this coming autumn but at Serum we're doing a series of courses over three days with a friend of mine his name's Michael Verde he's based in the states from East Texas but we're doing three days on reading fiction as spiritual practice and we're the first day we're doing To Kill a Mockingbird the second day we're doing Jane Eyre and the third we're doing The Life of Pi and I am so excited about that yes it's gonna be so stinking cool and then I'm also just getting to do lots of biblical study stuff, which who knew or that I would just be so <laughs> geeky about the Bible, which I, I knew I was, but it's been really interesting to kind of see how You've always, always been, been geeky, geeky about, about the Bible. It, yeah. We're both geeky about the true, Bible. This true. is awesome. But I get to teach a it's kind of a survey course, really, on, on the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, over the course of the autumn. And I'm just, I am just chomping at the bit, waiting to get started on pulling Yay. that all together. So... Yeah, some some really interesting developments outside of the podcast that's kind of kept us from releasing as soon as we had 
originally hoped. But we hope that what we're bringing you is going to be really good and that you're really going to like it. And yeah, I mean, it's exciting. We've got a we've got right. a great plan for this season. So we do, yeah. and I'm looking forward to it. There, we've got some guests coming we up. Do. I mean, more than one, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll leave you in suspense about that. (laughs) And and we're excited about the content that we're going to be discussing because we do believe that Outlander can still generate so much conversation. It is still giving. It is still giving. It is still giving. It is a generative piece of work. So, And let me just say, too, I wanted to say really quick, Mm -hmm. I got a chance to see Diana Gabaldon just a couple of weeks ago. That's right. If you follow us on Facebook, I, I don't know if we tweeted about it or not, but certainly on Facebook, we talked about you going to North Carolina and visiting I Diana. went to North Carolina and I saw Diana Gabaldon and, and I got her to sign my book. Oh my yeah, it was great. She is such a sharp speaker. Hmm. She clearly is, uh, I mean, she's a doctor in zoology, but she was engaging. She was funny, very dry sense of humor. Anytime I've seen her on an interview on television, I've always thought she's kind of standoffish. I've mm-hmm. always thought that. But now that I've seen her in person, I can say that it's not that. It's that that she's got a very dry sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And she's actually really engaging. She was very funny. I got a chance to ask a question about time travel and everything that we had said in our time travel episode really kind of matched what she was saying. So we were right? Just, Are you we saying were right. we were right? We were right. Oh, my gosh. I know. So I I gave her a card in hopes that she would listen to the podcast. And I do hope you're listening, Diana. Um, We still want to talk to you someday. We would love to talk with you someday. But she she has a lot of things to say about it. And I'm not going to get into everything that she said in her 45-minute lecture. Mm -hmm. But as we go through the season, if anything comes up, I will mention it. But I just wanted to let you know that I met her. She signed my stuff, and I'm so excited. <laughs> so so right now, it is Terry 2, Jamie 0 for, like, super fan um, invitations and stuff. Because you Terry's got to go not to... a geeky fan girl. <laughs> I'm just not. But it was a really great time. Yeah. yeah. We still continue to talk about options for having something in Scotland, like some means by which we can gather people together for... An in-depth conversation about Outlander and, you know, we have several of our guests to join us up there to, you know, to maybe do something. So we'll see. We're hoping. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. We'll work it out. (laughs) We need to get on with this podcast. So before we get started, we've got a couple admin things that we wanted to just remind you of. First of all, if you weren't aware, we promoted it on Facebook and Twitter, but I'm not sure we've ever talked about it on the actual podcast. But we have a store on teespring.com. It's T-E-E spring, all one word, dot com. And to find the store, it's teespring.com slash stores slash Outlander Soul. And we've got t-shirts and mugs and bags and stickers with the quote from Reverend Wakefield about when you encounter paradox, you might have encountered the truth. And we have mentioned that there have been other little quotes that we thought would be really great for t-shirts. So we will add more to those over the course of the 
season. And if you have suggestions, please let us know. That's a great idea too. Yeah. You, now, yeah. now keep in mind things like blood of my blood, bone of my yeah, all, those are out there. So we, yeah. what we're looking for is something very specific to Outlander Soul and maybe something having to do with the depth in which we examine this this particular text. So yeah. 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 And we are so appreciative of our supporters on Patreon. So much. We're appreciative of, gosh, all of them. And for those who have been sending us support via PayPal as well. So Mm -hmm. if you are interested in supporting us, just go to our website. There's a button that says support us. Click on that and it'll take you through all the different ways. If you find Mm -hmm. this a valuable thing and you wish to continue, we would love the support and help with that. That would be fantastic. Yeah, we, I mean, certainly having your support certainly covers a a lot of the expense, not everything, and especially not time just yet, but with more supporters that will make it more possible. So it'd be great to have, to have more listener feedback. We've gotten quite a few messages from folks kind of at the end of season two and in this meantime between season two and season three. And there was one bit of feedback that I thought was really interesting and useful, reflecting on the conversation we had last season about Roger's vocation and call Mm -hmm. and the conversations that Roger and Jamie would have together. And Lynn wrote, she says, I wonder if Roger wanted to get affirmation, I assume she means of his call, from Jamie, that coming from another male, it might give Roger more confidence that he's doing the right thing. And that Jamie had seen him in different situations and acting as a minister, and Jamie was very spiritual in his own way, and so he would have a different perspective. And so she says, we don't get a lot of background about Bree's spirituality and being a 20th century woman and not really coming from the same perspective that she may not have taken Roger's call as seriously as Jamie might have done. So this this refers to that moment when when Roger goes to Jamie for mm-hmm. permission almost or pretty for, much kind of blessing yeah a be, blessing to be a minister yeah and he does yeah. not go to Bree with this he goes to no, Jamie he goes to Jamie yeah and, and we we talked about that pretty extensively about why maybe that was and so mm-hmm. Lynn Lynn is responding to it in this way and I mm-hmm. you know I, I think I responded I think she had sent an email about that and she did yeah yeah and so I I responded that I don't I don't think Bree approaches spirituality the same place as Jamie Lynn says that Bree is a 20th century woman she's not coming from the same perspective and I agree with that she's she's mm-hmm. it's a very different perspective she does not have the Celtic spirituality that Jamie does mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that her spirituality isn't there it's yeah. just it's, she just doesn't have a strong sense of religious establishment that Jamie has Jamie's got this in his background I think you know Bree went to a Catholic church and stuff but she and her mom and dad really they were Weren't not as connected right to the institutional church or to yeah. a larger heritage in this kind of cloud of witnesses idea that I think Jamie would have more so yeah. right right and then there's this you know the whole idea of going to an outsider looking in is sometimes a better gauge of where your call might be I, you yeah. know I, I I feel this too with my own family sometimes it's easier for me to go talk to somebody who is a friend or an acquaintance and say, how do you feel about this and such, mm-hmm. rather than going to my husband or my sister or my mom or my dad when I was younger about these yeah. things. Because oftentimes the relationship that you have with them clouds up the call yeah. for them. 
Yeah, slightly more kind of objective observation yes. you're asking for. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. that's true. There's definitely something there having to do with gender. I know there is. Definitely. But I think that there might be some other things going on besides the gender issue. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that Roger goes to another male. He doesn't go to Claire. He goes to Claire yeah. with a lot of things that he doesn't he go does to bring go with. He does go to Claire. Yeah. But he goes but to Jamie. not for Jamie. this particular thing. He needs, he needs Jamie's blessing for it, I think. Yeah. I think there's also something about going to your chief. He exactly. He certainly sees Jamie's blessing as being part of this structure, hierarchical structure of Fraser's Ridge that's necessary. Isn't that also what would happen with the Holy Roman Empire, right? So mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the Pope needed to be approved by the greatest king, and the king needed to be approved by the Pope. And so they both tend mm-hmm. to work in tension with each other, but they both need each other in that way. So Roger goes to the one who's in charge of Fraser's Ridge to get this yeah. approval. Makes sense. Yeah. And, and I think you could also, yeah, argue too that Jamie goes to Roger for things. Absolutely. So, yeah, there is kind of a mutual accountability sort of situation here. I think. Right, right. Well, I think that takes us too to a good segue for today's conversation around friendship. Yep. We know we're not going to touch on every single friendship and aspect of friendship in the series uh, in this episode but we do want to kind of focus specifically on the role of friendships in the in the series and so yeah we'll start from there so we kind of see the next few episodes is kind of segueing into one another so we're going to talk about friendship in this one the next episode we'll spend some time looking at oaths and duty then going into honor we'll just spend right. some time on honor as well so honor and the breaking of honor or the, the disrespecting of that honor segues into vengeance, violence, justice, mercy, and forgiveness. So, yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of like blowing right through that. But the, <laughs> the idea of seeking vengeance and using violence to bring about justice. As a means of recovering honor. Right. And whether there is real justice in that or mm-hmm. in what ways does mercy and forgiveness take part in this justice and vengeance and honor yeah so each episode will be independent in the sense of we'll pick out one of those themes and we'll deal with that but they are going to build on one another and we'll kind of refer back as as we go along but yeah this is kind of a a a bit of a connected series in this season uh, where we deal with these issues kind of as a building blocks basically yep so yeah so Friendship. Friendship. Where shall we start? We shall start with Ian and Jamie. Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) The two friends. The two friends that we get almost from, well, from the very first book. Well, from virgins. If we're we're looking at chronological order in the sense of their lives. Yeah. we We get virgins at the earliest point. With Jamie and Ian in France. Yep. Fighting. Fighting together. With each other. And yeah. and they'd known each other since they were tiny tots. Ian's. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tiny tots with Jamie's father being the Laird uh, Lallybrock and then Ian's father working for him. Yeah. And so they, they grew up together. 
they grew up like brothers and they go to France like brothers. So in Dragonfly and Amber, Jenny is telling the story of Ian and Jamie's relationship. And she says that I remember when they were young, old John told Ian, I assume that old John is is Ian's father, right? Yeah. So old John told Ian that it was his job to stand to Jamie's right for he must guard his chief's weaker side in a fight. And he did. And they took it very seriously, the two of them. And I suppose old John was right at that. Watch them sometime when they're walking in the fields together. I don't suppose they even realize that they do it still, but they do. Jamie always moves to the left so that Ian can take up his place on the right, guarding his weak side. Because Jamie's left-handed and so fights as a left-handed warrior. And that's one of the reasons. Uh, He's always guarding his He's always guarding his weak side. And later, yeah, Ian then says, I'll stay here guarding your weak side, man, in Dragonfly and Amber. So, yeah, that relationship I have always loved. It's such a lovely thing. And I think there's something around, so there's two things. There's kind of the the Celtic idea of Anamkara, which means soul friend. And it's your your souls are inter intermeshed intertwined right there's that idea but then there's also something about we we keep talking about it but around how masculinity is talked about in this series and how male relationships and male community are de- is depicted or are de- what's the subject verb agreement there um <laughs> But how, how it's depicted in this series, it, I think, is, is really lovely in the context of what we don't see elsewhere. Right. We get to see friendships between people that are not rivals. It gets into some of the sexual relationships between men, too. So there's not just the friendship between James and, Jamie and Ian. There's also the friendship yeah. between Jamie and Lord John Gray. Yeah. And how lovely that relationship is as well. But it's a... There's tension there. There's tension there because Lord John Gray is still very much in love with Jamie. And Jamie knows this and is careful mm-hmm. with that. He, yeah. he takes care to know that his friend is in love with him and would like something more from him. And Jamie's homophobia is, is problematic in a lot of this because he is afraid. Yeah. He is afraid of, of these types of feelings. Especially in The Scottish Prisoner and in Brotherhood of the Blade. Yeah. I think it gets better as time goes on. But yeah, I think in the, and especially in those kind of early days, it's it's understandable it's problematic, right? Yeah. You know, he's yeah. had no <laughs> positive gay men in his life. No. You know, only and- <laughs> Sandringham and, and Blackjack. No, the ones that he has known have been trying to exploit him. They've been men of power who've tried to exploit him and who have exploited him and who have um, sexually violently hurt him. Mm -hmm. So to to meet up with somebody like Lord John Gray and find somebody who might take the place or at least substitute for Ian in a prison situation. I mean, he he loses Myrta. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the books, he loses Myrta and Mm -hmm. becomes friends with Lord John Gray. And then to have Lord John Gray approach him in this way must have been such a betrayal and a fearful one. But the idea that they do still support each other and the fact that Lord John Gray raises his son as a means of not just being in love with him, but also being his friend. Yeah. So we'll talk about this later, but there's a, there is honor in that relationship. There's honor in this friendship of, we said we were going to do this. We have made a vow, which we'll spend some time on oaths and stuff later, but made a vow to support each other and to, you know, I will... I'll take care of you or of your people in whatever form or fashion that takes. And so there's something really 
especially in the male friendships in this in this series, very much caught up in honor. Yeah, I think. Yeah. And I think Jamie, too. So Jamie acts a lot like a father to young Ian, to mm-hmm. Ian. Mm-hmm. I want to say it grows into something more. That the male relationships are, you're right, very different than they are depicted in other stories. There, there are the male relationships that are contentious, like between Dougal and Jamie, yeah. or between Colum and Dougal. Or between Jamie and Tom Christie. There's definitely competition that exists. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Jamie does not have tons of friends. Mm-hmm. But the friends he does have, and I, I almost want to say that uh, we, Ian, becomes one of those. Fergus becomes something like that. Yeah. It's yeah. A, like a cross between a son and a friend. Someone you can depend on. Someone yeah. that's caring and yeah. will be nurtured. I mean, Jamie nurtures and cares for young mm-hmm. Ian. He nurtures and cares for Fergus as he would his own son. And I think too, so the the Lord John Gray novels and short stories and the Scottish Prisoner, I think both of the, you know, both of those bodies of work are really strong in the male relationships. And it's really interesting for me to kind of read those and go, there are not many women in the in these stories. So in Scottish Prisoner, Minnie is the only active female character in the whole book. Yeah. Lord Melton's wife. And except for there's Betty at the beginning and the end. But there's this dimension within these male relationships of loyalty, which we've talked about, kind mm-hmm. of this honor idea. But yeah, you just mentioned nurture, uh, nurturing and caring. Yeah. Protection idea, commitment idea. And what I was struck by, especially with Scottish Prisoner, is there is not a bumbling, incapable, wastrel in sight. Nope. They are all capable, competent, mostly mature. Again, it kind of comes back to that kind of gender conversation of how some genres tend to either the man is one dimensional or... In a lot of feminist sort of ideas, the man is bumbling and incapable and an idiot or, you know, and right. that doesn't exist in this series, which I really appreciate. They are well-rounded. Yeah, it's a very grown-up kind of yeah. approach to this. I mean, if you look at the people in your circle and the people mm-hmm. that you work with, most of them are capable at least one or two things. Yeah. And you don't run yeah. into the bumbling idiots as often as you do. It, it, they're funny, right? So they're great for yeah. they're great for foils. They're great for whatever in a story in a narrative environment because they're fun yeah. to poke at. And generally, we we allow the folks who are in power whenever we do these types of things, to be the ones that are the bumbling idiots. They, it, it happens yeah. in the Bible often. So if you look, it at, does, yes. if you look at the book of, of Esther and mm-hmm. uh, King Xerxes, he's the bumbling idiot throughout this. And he's obviously the one who's got the most power. Yeah. So they yeah. make him look like an idiot because it's a fun story. It's got some scary things in it. It's got some funny things in it. Mm-hmm. It's, got, it's got something for everyone because it's Purim. You know, we're all having yeah. a good time. And if you look at, like, Shakespeare's stories, oftentimes he will place the lord or the lady or the duke or the earl or somebody like that in a position of power as the fool, as the idiot. Mm -hmm. And the fool in the whole thing is the one who speaks the truth. So there's a reversal of power, which is surprising and therefore funny. But what Diana does is something very, very different. She's not telling a funny story. No, I can't think of any fool type character 
Well, Lizzie. Lizzie's a bit foolish. But not foolish in the telling the truth, but just foolish as in she's naive and she doesn't... Yeah, and and the Duke of Sandringham is kind of a fool, Mm. a setup. I mean, he's not the fool who tells the truth, obviously, but he's the the older, more powerful man who's kind of a fop, who comes off as being a complete doof. And Dougal comes off that way sometimes, too. But in the end, and at the base, he's not. He's a very, very powerful warrior. Mm-hmm. And he's he knows exactly what he's doing. He happens to be rather smart when it comes to the, <laughs> to the politics of it all. He's just not yeah. as smart as his brother. Yeah. And then there's, so I think it also comes down to an emotional intelligence. Yeah. That Dougal just didn't have a lot of emotional intelligence and I would say probably Sandringham didn't either yeah and Lizzie probably didn't either so I think in that way the kind of the foolishness is is based on naivete about the emotional impact of of their actions or just not thinking things through not being really self-aware that kind of stuff I think there's also something about so being aware and being able to be reflective is is around realizing that it's not just about you, that what you do impacts other people, right? Yeah. And so there was a really interesting observation. So the Scott and the Sassanac podcast, which is no longer, but they were doing a commentary episode on the search episode, mm-hmm. which was from season one. And one of the things that they said was that masculinity and Outlander is not a solitary affair, that no one has an identity that is solely solitary. Everyone is connected. Yeah. And the men in this story are all connected to one another in really interesting way, in unique ways, I think, compared to other stories, other series, other things that we that we've read in the past. It's been very valued, at least in American society. And we've owned mm-hmm. a lot of stories in the last yeah. hundred years because of Hollywood, right? Yeah. But it's become a very valued thing to be the solitary male. Mm-hmm. To be the Gary Cooper, the John Wayne, walking down the street, high noon, you're the only yeah. one against all the bad guys. That's been the way we've lifted up our heroes. Yeah, the myth of the solitary American male. <laughs> yeah, the cowboy. The, and then, you know what? The... And now we're paying the price. Yeah. Yeah, I think socially, mental health issues, all those kinds of things, we're... It comes at a cost. Or the, um, or the myth of the hero with the gun. I mean, yeah. that's entirely mythology right yeah. there. That's archetypal that we've created, that Hollywood has created. Yeah. So the solitary idea that they, um, the Scott and the Sassanac was talking about, I think it's important to say that femininity in Outlander isn't solitary either. Oh, no. But, yeah. but we're used to that. We're used to seeing women in community with one another and talking with one another it's it's an assumed sort of thing what we're not used to seeing now because of that myth because of of what you were saying is is men in community with one another so we're not seeing or we're not reading about men having complex deep emotional responses about things and they're not belittled or emasculated as a result of having those complex deep emotional relationships which i think we don't have to go this route, but I do think it's interesting that I wonder how having complex, deep emotional responses in the Outlander series for the men in the story is contributing to the fandom conversations about Jamie being emasculated. Huh. That's a really good point. 
Because we're just not used to seeing a complex, deep emotional response from male characters. The one person I talked to about this, I talked to at the Through the Stones conference last November. She also believed that Jamie was emasculated, but her mm. her belief was that Jamie was emasculated in the television series. But not in the books. But not in the books. She thinks that Jamie in the television series is very different than Jamie in the books. And of course, for all of us, I think that that is true. Because Mm -hmm. when you pick a character and go with that one character and go with that one look and go with that one actor, you cut off so many avenues of everything you ever dreamed about this character, everything you ever imagined Mm -hmm. when you were reading Mm -hmm. it. And so, of course, Sam fulfills so many of our fantasies here um, <laughs> about James Fraser, but he also absolutely destroys some of those fantasies about James Fraser. I would still love to have that conversation with her about why Jamie on screen is different than Jamie in the book as far as mm. his masculinity is concerned. It's also a 20th century, 21st century guy playing a 18th century guy. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. I agree with you on that too. I mean, he's mm-hmm. he's coming at it from a sensibility and actors only mm-hmm. really act out of their own experience. You you can mm-hmm. only act out of really what you know. Every character you act has a piece of you in it, and if you've not had these experiences, then I mean, if you're not an 18th century man, then you're not going to be able to act necessarily yeah. fully like that 18th century man. You can do as much as you can. Which is why folks like Daniel Day-Lewis, when they go into a role, they do the whole method acting thing, which is they submerge themselves into whatever their character would submerge them, would have been in. Mm-hmm. So when he yeah. was here doing, when he was in Richmond filming Lincoln, he wanted a house that had no electricity, no heat, no anything, so that he could feel and hear the sounds and be a part of that and, and have that experience so that he could act from that experience. And there's something to be said for doing that, but let me just say that there are certain roles that you take on that you cannot have the there's experiences no way of. you can ever immerse yourself into the full experience no you can't of course not so huh yeah so i i think seeing the deep emotional connections that jamie has visually is very different than Mm -hmm. reading about them yeah i think so too and i think especially when we see it through claire's eyes she clearly has not seen men with those types of deep connections either her Uncle Lamb, whom she spent all that time with, did not seem to have those deep connections with people. Well, we certainly don't hear about no. them. He had a he had a manservant, um, and he knew Frank. Was, and he knew Frank. Yeah. So there's a later reference. Um, maybe this is a good kind of a good segue of to kind of talking about Claire's relationships yeah. and community. But there's a, a reference where she says that she was pretty much raised by Uncle Lamb and his manservant, Farouz. And when <laughs> I reread that, I was like, oh, I didn't remember that. But yeah, so Uncle Lamb knew Frank, but we don't know who else he knew and who else she grew up with. And yeah. So what about Claire's story? Claire's yeah community and friendships so claire i don't know claire seems i mean she shows up she's a sassanuk right yeah she shows up she's got no connection with anyone and she had this strong connection with frank she doesn't talk about any strong friends that she had during the war yeah so yeah i mean she's married to frank but yeah she doesn't really 
She talks about, you know, patience that she had that made a difference for her. But as far as community and friendships go, she before did. going through the stones, it's pretty much Frank. Right. So when she was serving in World War II, she, she mentions that relationships in World War II, at least on the front lines where she was, were very very temporary they were very Mm. passing and that people would make a quick you know a quick intimate connection and then be gone from each other because you know the the folks who were fighting were you had to get back on the front almost immediately or they were sent home or they died or and so she she actually mentioned she's like things were very very fragile and so you did not make those connections and so she's trying to reconnect with Frank when she gets pulled through the stones to 200 years mm. previous. And I think that's part of what actually saves her is that she is unconnected and she's able to survive in that world. Yeah. And she tries to befriend people. She tries to befriend a couple of people, but it's really only so that she can get back to the stones. <laughs> <laughs> She wants to be there for so she's got an ulterior motive. That's not really a friendship per se. She she no. likes Mrs. Fitz, but Mrs. Fitz is there to kind of help her survive and not to mm-hmm. be a friend. It's only really after she chooses not to go back to Frank and stay with Jamie does she open it up. Mm-hmm. And of course then that's when they go to Lallybrock. Yeah. So what about Galus? So do you think her friendship with Galus in the first book and in the first season is legit? Eh. Eh. I don't. I think that she is, again, a means to survival to a certain degree. Mm. I think that she assumes that Galus is not like her, obviously. She didn't know anybody else like her. And had Galus mm. opened up and told her who she was, really, I, I think Claire knows something's up with Galus. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that she keeps everybody at arm's length because she can't tell them her secret, that she's really from the 20th yeah. century. So she's not going to, she can't do that. She knows something's wrong there, that Galus is doing things that she wouldn't do. And we've all had friends like this, people that, <laughs> I mean, we, we, we all have. We've all had friends that, you know, we kind of kept on the periphery. They were kind mm. of odd and cool and doing the different things and we sort of hung out with them, but then mm. we stepped back whenever they got a little too out there. Yeah. Or or the what I call the utilitarian friends. There so you we go. love them because of what they do for us right. as opposed to just who they are. Right. And Galus gave her access to herbs and, you know, medicines and that kind of stuff. And right. uh, access to a sensibility that seemed more in line with Claire's, but she didn't know why. And Galus can give her the dirt on everybody, too. And Galus can give her the dirt on everybody and kind of help with kind of introducing where she is and what's happening and that kind of stuff. And yeah, it doesn't have to be black and white of is it or isn't it. I think there's... I think there are elements of true friendship there. I think they do kind of encounter one another and and begin to care for one another, and especially in the trial situation, you know, Galus yeah. makes a sacrifice, and yeah. maybe in the back of Galus's mind, she thought, oh, I'm going to get out of this anyway, so it's going to be okay, but I don't, I think, you know, things were fairly hairy, she knew, you know, that there was a possibility of death, and she still, yeah, she still made it possible for Claire to escape. She takes a huge risk. She does. She takes yeah. a huge risk by, by exposing her belly, 
She saves yeah. herself at least for the next six months. And, and and that's enough time to get word out to Dougal, right? Yeah. But, so, you know, driven a bit by self-preservation, but also care for someone else yeah, too, I yeah. think. Yeah, she's able to save her as well. She knows who she is and she knows, mm. she, she figures out who Claire is. I don't think Galus looks at Claire as a friend. Okay. I, I think she looks at Claire as a possible compatriot. Yeah. Again, utilitarian. What can Claire do for her? Exactly. And how can they join forces to to, bring to stop? Yeah, to 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 stop the English and to stop Culloden. That's her mm-hmm. main focus. And I don't think Galus has the room in her world for a friend. I really mm-hmm. don't. Otherwise, mm-hmm. she wouldn't have tried to kill Ian and Claire and the rest of them and Voyager. Mm-hmm just so that she could get back and then steal Claire's child. You know, she's yeah. not, she's, there's something, there's something up with Galus. Yeah. Which then though, kind of brings me to the question of, so we see lots of deep male friendships and connections. We don't see many female relationships and connections in the series. Because I'm just, I'm thinking of the main female characters. So who's Claire's? confidant jamie obviously right well so, yeah yeah i mean she goes to Mar- you know she's connected to brie and to marsley they have conversations mrs bug occasionally but as far as deep connections she goes to the men and we can talk about that a bit more because there's some really interesting quotes and stuff about that brie who does brie other than her mother what other female lizzie i guess maybe but she doesn't really go to lizzie with I mean, she doesn't even go to Lizzie with the rape. Yeah, no. Marsley? Who did Marsley go to? Marsley always goes to Claire. Yeah. She always goes to Claire as her substitute mom. Yeah, okay. And it, it's not really a friendship, though. Claire, no. Claire still keeps everybody kind of at arm's length, except for Jamie. Yeah. And, and Bree. She will talk to Bree and Roger about certain things, but even Roger... It's more of a, she doesn't go to Roger with her issues ever. But the level of conversation that she has with Roger is based upon I would what say is a deeper need. level of conversation than she has with any other person she, other than Jamie. She does, but she, she goes there because he needs it. Yeah, she's, okay. She's the, the woman who doles out as much wisdom as she can. She's the healer. She's the mm-hmm. one who can give yeah. what she, And Roger needs healing in his soul, so she offers that, yeah. I think. Um, I don't think that they are friends. I think they're close. I think she treats mm. him as a son, mm. but and just as she treats her daughter as her daughter, and yeah. she treats Marcelli that way as well. Yeah. But I, I think that Claire is somewhat stunted when it comes to friendship. I just think she doesn't know how to do it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I would agree. I think... Claire's lack of community in the, especially in Voyager. So Claire's lack of yeah. communication or community in 20th century world, just really, her isolation just really struck, strikes to me. And she talks to Jamie about kind of later of how lonely she was. But she, when she does have close relationships, they're primarily with men. Yeah. So Joe Abernathy was, she says, was one of my best friends, pro- probably, possibly the only person close to me who truly understand what I understood what I did and why. Right. So who were her other friends? She isn't described as telling anyone else that she was leaving. Joe was the only person who knew that she was going somewhere. Did he even really understand why? And she isn't described as telling uh, or, or as telling him about her time travel, but though Bree tells him that later, right? I don't think he, she does. 
I don't. Well, maybe she does say something. Joe about certainly it. knows that he's got to keep the keep the home fires burning he, for them yeah, while they travel around the world. <laughs> yeah, no, he does. <laughs> time, but I, I don't know that she's told him that they actually traveled through time. Right. Okay. Mm, that's a good question. Yeah, it is a good I question. I just assume that sh- that eventually Bree gave him the lowdown. Right. But maybe so, not. So, to me, this kind of exposes a certain seamy underbelly mm-hmm. of female relationships. Mm-hmm. It has been my experience, and this is not everybody's experience. I don't have a lot of really close female friends. I never mm. have. I actually feel an affinity towards Claire in, in this situation. Right. And anytime I've become like close friends with, and I don't have, I mean, I've got a lot of friends out there. And if you go on Facebook, I've got like 1,600 quote friends <laughs> um, and acquaintances and what have you. Because if you're Facebook friends, because that I'm is a, the key, I'm right? A, I'm a, I got fans. <laughs> but, you know, and I've got a lot of acquaintances and I can hang out and we can chat and have lots of good conversations and everything. Mm-hmm. But I have only a very few core group of people that I yeah. consider like people that I would call when I have a problem. Yeah. People come to me with their problems, and I'm good with that. But I r- rarely go to people with my problems. And I go to, yeah. I go to Dave me with too. those. That's my husband. Yeah. There's a seamy underside of female relationships because for so long women have not been in power, and we still aren't in power in many arguments that are out there. And because of that, we vie for mm-hmm. the attention of those who are in power. And so a lot of friendships still see each other as threats. Mm-hmm. A lot of women. Well, and we're, we're vying for the attention of those who are in power. Right. And in a patriarchal situation, the ones who are in power are men. Right. Right? Right. And so if we're vying for each other, or vying for their attention, then we are in competition with, with each, each other. other for that attention. Right. And so it'll go to, if you are in competition with the most intelligent one or the prettiest one mm-hmm. or the one that's considered the most eligible or the one. And, and when I've been in f- friendships with women... I've had those friendships like turn on a dime yep. because a male walked into the room yep, <laughs> or because a boss, my boss or our boss liked something I did yeah. and, and suddenly I become the threat and I the never, claws come out, right? Right. I never looked at it that way. I never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. I just, you know. Assumed we were all on the same team. And it was very naive of me when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And I watch for this now that I'm older. And I'm wondering if Claire has had some of that happen. Certainly this happens to her at, at uh, Castle Leoch. The women yeah. at Castle Leoch do not come near her. No. Only Mrs. Fitz. Because she is attractive. She's intelligent. The men are the ones who are actually attracted to her competence. Dougal is yeah. very attracted to her competence. And yeah. so is Jamie. And well, and he would grind her corn too. Yeah, right. right. So. He would totally grind that corn. Um, and, and and he's he would be fine with a woman like that because yeah. by he's not threatened. He doesn't have to be. Yeah. He's a man and he's in power. And we don't even yeah we don't even get to know what's her name Letitia Collins right. Collins' wife really. Okay, so a couple things that I'm I, well yeah. So first. Talking, you're talking about your own experience. I had this really interesting experience where, so I was a bit of a tomboy when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And so all of my best friends, with the exception of one, in university 
And in high school, we're boys. I spent all my time with boys. And it wasn't... Yeah, I don't... I think probably because spending time with... I wasn't... I wasn't a girly girl. And I didn't feel like I fit in with girls. And just kind of... And I guess in some ways it was competition because I knew that if I hung out with them, the boys that I was hanging out with would like them and not me. You know, like, so I think there's probably something about that. But since graduate school, seminary, really, I have, I have good guy friends, but my closest friends are female. And I, I think that transition, and I don't know when it happened and I don't know why, I'm also kind of intrigued by the whole Harry Met Sally idea of men and women can be friends. And I think that's not true, but I think there's something to it. And, you know, so I've had some good guy friends that I've had to be really careful with now that, you know, I have a partner and just wanting to, you know, keep myself above reproach, you know, just kind of all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, recognizing there are people that I want to share my life with and, and how to do that when it's a mixed gender sort of situation. I don't know if that's useful or not. It is <laughs> actually really useful because I feel kind of the same way on that. It Once I got married and this, this happened to me. So I've, I've been married once before I was, I was married mm-hmm. to uh, somebody for five years and we divorced and I preferred being friends with men. I had like one mm-hmm. or two, one good girlfriends in high school. And by girlfriend, I mean, she was my friend and she had the issue with being jealous with me and feeling like I was a threat and it was weird. But most of the Mm -hmm. other men that I hung out with, the young men that I hung out with were my friends. But then puberty (laughs) happened and suddenly they didn't want to be friends anymore and it got weird. (laughs) And so, so I, I, Whereas I was the non-threatening, no one knows me like Jamie knows me, but yet they would go and date everybody else, which it was... No, ugh. that anyway, didn't happen. Know. It was suddenly my friend was, and, and I was the one going, oh, he's my good friend. And then he wanted to date me. And I'm like, no. What ultimately happened was I became good friends with folks I thought were my friends when I started working. And I was working mm-hmm. um, in engineering at a local power company. And so a lot of the folks were men. And I thought yeah. that, I thought that we were friends. And the moment I got engaged, nope, they dropped they, you. they wouldn't they wouldn't talk to me anymore. And I'm like, wow. this has to do with sex. This yeah. never had to do with sex for me. I just wanted mm-hmm. to be friends. I thought naively that we could do that. And mm-hmm. that was the Harry went when Harry met Sally moment for me. And I was like, oh God, yeah. this really is true. And I need to take a step back. That reminds me, we haven't ever really talked about it yet, but Bree's kind of attempt to work at the dam and be friends with the guys. Yeah, that, yeah. Know, I totally yeah. feel her and on that. It turns out that they were, yeah, yeah just. Yep, fixed. they were just yeah. after her. <laughs> but, okay, so, but that does bring us to, Claire has overtly said in the series that she prefers the company of men. Yes. Right. So her her meaningful relationships in the series, I I think on the whole, are pretty much with Jamie and Myrta and Roger yeah. and Lord John Gray. A bit later, she says she has a really good relationship with Jenny, but then eh, maybe not again, because Jenny's loyalty is with Jamie. Yeah. Again, it's a competition. With, again, at, it's a competition. Yeah. Thing. Again, Jenny yeah. immediately felt threatened by Claire because you know Jamie brings her home and suddenly, and she's a sassnook, and they immediately have this contentious yeah. relationship. And when 
they become sisters almost. Claire, yeah. Claire's thrilled with this. She's never had a good girlfriend before that we yeah. know of. So it's new for yeah. her. And yeah. then she comes back looking forward to seeing Jenny after she's been gone for 20 years. And Jenny will have nothing to do with her. And in fact, yeah. Jenny hurts her. Yeah. So, okay. So let's kind of go through those. So Louise, we've already talked about Galus. Yeah. We'll talk about Jenny a little bit more in a minute. Louise in Dragonfly and Amber yeah. isn't, she never really saw the real no. Claire, no. I don't think. So she's a friend, she's but not really. utilitarian. Right? She's utilitarian friend. So Malva later is a mentee, ends up bet- betraying Claire, not really friends. No. So in, in, I wonder if Claire's preference for male company, we can say in some ways it can kind of be connected to her to her maybe her introvertedness because yeah. women kind of tend to chatter she talks about men being much more straightforward in their conversations and so she really likes that but there's also that differentness idea that you were talking about that that i think the women in the story tend to be threatened or feel like they're in competition yeah. with her and and so claire she says she feels more at home on the batter f- battlefield than on the hearth or in the drawing right. room and that's where her talents are best used Exactly. Yeah. And and yeah. that's got to be annoying for people who don't have those talents. Don't it's do a that. threat. And don't understand right. that. Yeah. I'm I I mean Jim has told me my partner Jim has told me that I am intimidating yeah. for some women that they don't know how to have a conversation with me, namely some of his family. <laughs> and and because I don't know, because I'm educated, because I have a doctorate because because why because i'm from the states i i don't know but there's this idea that that i can't be approached and i wonder if in some ways that's the same thing that claire was was encountering that she has this occupation she's educated she presents herself as being equal to men she stays by jamie's side as a peer or a confidant and so the other relationship that we haven't talked about is mother hildegard yeah and i think for claire if it comes down to equality, non-competition, sharing of soul, meeting of minds, seeing each other's hearts, that maybe Mother Hildegard is probably the most honest female friendship that Claire has had. I would agree with that. I think it goes down to being eminently useful. They both want that so much. Yeah. And they both know that they have got the skills and the talent and they see that in each other and they don't feel threatened by each other. There's yeah. nothing in this yeah. world that would threaten Mother Hildegard that Claire no. has. And she's unencumbered because she also has no husband, has no desire. So there's the whole men aren't part of the equation yeah. here. So their relationship passes the pe- Bechtel yep. test in the sense of that they don't, they don't really talk about men or their relationship to men. They talk about how best to serve the L'Hopitalong. Yeah. They, they talk about yeah. how best to serve their patients. And yeah. that's yeah. really ultimately what they need. And, mm-hmm. and I think they find camaraderie there. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I get that whole you're intimidating type of thing too. And I think it goes back to the fact that you and I do so much. And, and um, there's, there's, there's not a thing that we don't touch that we don't love to do. I mean, if <laughs> I, I just refuse to do yeah. things I don't love to do anymore. And <laughs> yeah, and so enthusiasm because we're doing what we love as opposed right. to boredom of, you know. Well, and as busy grudgery. as I've been this past year, it's mm-hmm. I, I've had to give up a lot of the things that I used to do. So here's the other thing, too, is that Claire doesn't 
the stuff that she does is non-traditional. So she's a healer, she goes off to war, she camps with the men. She does things that are non-traditional for women at that Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And she refuses to do the other roles. She doesn't, she's not the main cook. Once Miss Bug shows up, she becomes the cook. Okay? (laughs) Claire abdicates all all traditional feminine. And let me just say, the men are grateful. (laughs) Happily. Yeah, yeah, And she, she doesn't want to do the cleaning. She doesn't want to mm-hmm. host parties. She doesn't want to have all the mm-hmm. babies. She doesn't want to do the decoration. She hates doing laundry. And there's a, there's mm-hmm. a scene in, I don't know if it was, it was in one of the middle books where all the all the women are out to do the laundry, and she and she yeah. walks by them because she's not going to be doing that. And she's just like, <laughs> I hate this, and they hate her. For, they hate her for it. They're shooting daggers at her mm-hmm. because she's not mm-hmm. doing. The thing, what was expected? She's not doing what's expected. So, so here's here's mm-hmm. the thing about that. They are they would be okay with her going out and doing all the healing and the men's stuff and all, as long as she was doing all the other stuff too. All the other stuff too. Yeah. So this gets back to us today, and the women yeah. who do too much. And, yeah. and the emotional labor of going out and doing your job, but then also being expected to still come home and take care of all those other things to carry the emotional weight of remembering that this needs to be done and that needs right. to be done. And, oh, yeah, we got to send this card to this person and we need to care about X, Y, and Z. The women are still yeah. expected to be the one to take care of the home and yeah. all of the people who live in that home. And all of the extended people who are part of that home. We wonder why women don't end up rising in leadership positions. And part of it is the bogging down of all of this. Well, you've got too much shit to do. We've got so much shit to do. And isn't that isn't that the yeah. C.S. Lewis quote? He's like, of course, I in in the past men have done many things, but that's because they had the time, yeah. and so because yeah. women gave them that time. Hmm. But there is that level of anger at her and that distance that she mm-hmm. keeps. And Mother Hildegard had lots of people doing stuff for her, too. Yeah, Mother Hildegard had time to do the things she loved. And to fulfill right? her vocation, yeah. Going back to Jenny, though, because I think we need to probably spend a little bit more time on yeah. that. So Claire says that Jenny Murray had been the nearest thing she'd ever had to a sister and by far the closest woman friend of her life. And this was in Voyager. And she says, owing to circumstance, most of my close friends in the last 15 years had been men. There were no other female doctors, and the natural gulf between nursing staff and medical staff prevented more than casual acquaintance with other women working at the hospital. So her gender and in her vocation, there just wasn't proximity is basically what she's right. saying. And as for the women in Frank's circles, the departmental secretaries and the university wives, more than any of that, though, was the knowledge that of all the people in the world, Jenny was the one who might love Jamie Fraser as much, if not more, than I did. And so she's talking about how eager she was to see Jenny. And then, yeah, and then Jenny... But that's the thing that tears them apart. she does. Because, again, Claire is a threat. Yeah, Claire's a threat. Jenny's loyalty is always to Jamie first, I think. And a lot of people, uh, fandom, I think, was kind of, we're kind of talking about, you know, why couldn't, why was Jenny so mean? Um, or why did Jenny respond in the way she did? And, and I've been, I don't know, I've been able to give Jenny quite a bit of grace oh, on yeah. that. Because, so, 
Jenny's always been extremely protective of Jamie. So even that quote of, if your life is is suitable exchange for my honor, then tell me, brother, why is my honor not a suitable exchange for your life? So there's this idea that she's willing to, to give everything away for him. And the aftermath, seeing Jamie in the aftermath after Claire left, so she saw the pain he went through, the desolation that he went through. And in her defense, I would... I would probably have reacted the same way. If I were as involved with my brother that she was with Jamie, that to have Claire, who might have been great, and I might have loved her dearly, but if she left and was gone for 20 years and I saw what he did or, you know, what he had to go through, yeah, I don't know that I'd be too happy about her traipsing back in either. I agree. I, I agree with that. I don't know that I would subvert it the way she did. Well, so if somebody were to do that to my sister, I would, mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, I would pound them. <laughs> just, I would mm-hmm. just, I would pound them. Um, and I'm, I'm not a violent yeah. person, but they would not get a second go with me. My sister's first husband yeah. was a violent man, and he mm-hmm. did some things that he should not have done, and he didn't get a second chance with me. There's just no way. You're not going to get yeah. that second chance ever again. And so I can understand why Jenny would be upset, particularly if if he sacrificed by going to jail, by living as Mm -hmm. a hermit, by living as a monk, by living Mm -hmm. as for all those years just to protect Claire and her child and his child. And and then she just kind of comes back and she's safe and happy and the baby's elsewhere. I would be pretty Mm -hmm. pissed myself. Yeah. So Jenny, I think, kind of talking about earlier about kind of the emotional labor and the things that we do to, to keep things going, that Jenny felt it was her job to pick up the pieces to kind of keep things going. And in even if it wasn't her place, that this idea that I think maybe, yeah, okay, maybe technically she should have kept her nose out of it, but Jenny Jenny's character has always been putting yeah. her nose into things, right? And so, yeah, I think, I, I don't know. It, it makes sense to me why, why she did that. What I'm interested in is the next book that's coming out where we'll see. Good friends again. Is, are Claire and, Claire and Jenny going to be as close friends again? I think Jenny's on the yeah. way. I think moving to Fraser's Ridge and, and you know, being that. Yeah, I think, I think that's so going to happen. So let's circle this back to maybe some theological mm. things having to do with friendship. There aren't a lot of friendships laid out in Christian or Jewish scriptures. There Mm -hmm. are a few. You've got got, uh, David Mm -hmm. and Jonathan. You've got Mary and Elizabeth. And David and Jonathan, you know, within queer theology at least, is is perceived as a sexual relationship. But that doesn't mean it's not also friendship. And the fact that Jonathan, it, 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 it almost is Jonathan has got David's weak side. Yeah. And and does, yeah. you know, does die whereas mm-hmm. uh, David rises to power and that's one of the one of the losses there. And he's horrified when it happens. But there aren't a whole lot of opportunity to see in our faith friendships, at yeah. least in our scriptures. And I think it's yeah. important for us to to realize that there are spiritual practices around friendship. There is mm-hmm. holy listening. There is holy friendship. There is the opportunity to, mm-hmm. when you come together, treat that as sacred time, which, yeah. you know, we you don't see, all, you see that more with Jamie and his male friends. You see them setting aside time yeah. for each other to confess mm-hmm. to each other. 
like when Jamie confesses mm-hmm. to Ian what happens with him and Blackjack Randall, or going with Dougal on a quest, or going to to do something with it. They they take this time, and and when Jamie goes into the pool to call his ancestors to strengthen him, he calls these men as if he would call them as his friends and as his strength. I yep. again don't see that as often in the female with Claire. Yeah. And I don't even see that yeah. between Jenny and any other women. I don't even see that with Brian Marsley. I just don't see a lot of close female friendships that we get in this mm. where people specifically intentionally set aside time to be with each other. Yeah, and to maintain that yeah. relationship. Yeah. yeah, and to grow it deeper yeah. and to learn more and make it intimate without being sexual. So in the, so in the Hebrew Bible tradition... There's a lot of, so Proverbs and Ecclesiastes would talk quite a bit about friendship, but it's in much more kind of, well, it's wisdom literature, so it's much more an advice kind of way as opposed to being based in narrative. You've got Abraham as the friend of God, so there's something about that and kind of this uh, an intimacy of relationship, but obviously not equal, so there's something there. I'm, I also think about the negative example of Job's friends. Yeah. So these people who, maybe with perfectly good intentions, sitting around trying to help him understand, and they're going, well, you must have done something wrong. What happened? You know, and we've got all those, those friends who, you know, do a post-mortem on some, you know, horrible experience and kind of, okay, what could we, what could have happened? You know, what, what could you have done to prevent did, this? Where did we? Yeah. Yeah, how can we prevent this later? And so I think that's a really human response. And in relationship with one another, we do we do, do that. But the way in which the text is, is your friends are wrong. Your friends, you, he didn't do anything wrong. They didn't trust that he didn't do anything wrong. So it was based in their theology. It was based in their worldview. And it's just based in we tend to blame ourselves when, when something right. happens. And so, you know, I've heard lectures or sermons on kind of you know how not to be like a friend of Job and how going back to that holy listening of just accepting people when they say they didn't do anything wrong going okay yeah well that's all right so what do we do now but that yeah you're, you're right I don't narratively maybe we're just not looking for friendships I'd be curious I, someone I know Someone has written a book on friendships. Oh, of course there has to be. Um, and I know, I know that if you go to some of the spiritual but, practice websites, there mm-hmm. are some things on mm-hmm. spiritual practice of, of friendship, that it is yeah. a spiritual practice and that can be practiced daily. We, mm-hmm. we did this when I was working with Project Burning Bush. One of the women who mm-hmm. helped create the curriculum for the spiritual, the daily spiritual practices, one of those practices was holy friendship and, be, and entering yeah. that moment where you intentionally lay open your soul for someone and you intentionally allow them to do that and it becomes a safe space to do that and it allows you to grow deeper in friendship and community Mm -hmm. because so Mm -hmm. you know community really gets its basis in not just the utilitarian stuff that we can do for one another Mm -hmm. community Mm -hmm. gets its basis in grabbing each other's weak side you know it really is yeah. that. It's yeah. we, we do that for each other. And so we see each other and we see our weaknesses and we, we're there to help protect them and to guard them and to mind them. And then we become friends with each other. Mm-hmm. The idea is that you can be in community with people that you aren't friends with, obviously, but kind of the foundation of that. But how effective is that yes. community, yeah. I'd say. But I think I think what we're 
yeah, where we're getting or where we're kind of coming down to, and maybe this is where we end, is as far as models for holy friendship here, they're in the men in this story yeah. and not yeah. in the women. The men are the ones who who make the efforts, like you were saying, to confess to one another, to guard each other's weak side, to, you know, do all of those things that, that we've kind of named as being markers of real, true friendship and life together. We see that with the men in this story and not with the women. And I think that's interesting. I'm glad to see it because we, I'm not seeing as much of it in our narrative today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Ooh, so next well, time we're going to be talking about... Next time we're talking about honor and oaths. Friends, if you've been listening to this podcast from when we started it last year, you'll have occasionally heard the snores of my precious dog, Luna. We've shared a few videos and photos of her on social media, but we feel that it's important to let you know that my partner and I said goodbye to her at the end of May. She was almost 10 years old and she lived a good life, always by my side during that time. I'm heartbroken and recording this podcast without her snoring under my desk is going to take some time to get used to. So in memorial, here's her snoring one last time. That's it for this episode of Outlander Soul. Thanks for listening. If you love what we do, a review, especially on iTunes, but wherever you get your podcasts would be really appreciated because it helps people to find us. If you listen and like what you hear, please consider supporting us financially. Just click the support us button at our website on outlandersoul.com. There's lots of ways to donate, either via Patreon or PayPal and every little bit helps. Also, we love hearing your comments, questions, and ideas for the show. So we'd like for you to join in the conversation so you can reach us through our website, through email, voice memos, or social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. You can also contact us straight by email, outlandersoulpodcast at gmail.com. All lowercase, all one word. Or you can visit our website at outlandersoul.com and fill in the contact form. Thanks again, everyone. We're going to see you again in two weeks' time. Bye. Bye.